0: Well, if you have a Bible, we will be where we left off last week. We're going to be in Acts 5, starting in verse 12. Last week we saw the death of Ananias and Sapphira having lied to God and to the church. And we saw great fear upon the whole church and everyone who heard of these things. And we'll pick it up in verse 12 in a moment. But for our introduction, I want to tell you about... What was going on in 1740 at Yale, there was total upheaval. Harvard had been started in 1636 to train up ministers for the field of harvest, to send them out. By 1701, the Congregationalists in Connecticut felt Harvard had become overrun with man-centered teaching, and so they started a new school, Yale, and yet... Forty years after Yale had begun, it was no better off than Harvard. The faculty were supposed to be raising up preachers for pulpits, but many of them were not living Christian lives themselves. And they had a problem on their hands because the student body had become alive and was fired up about the Bible and about the Word of God. In 1733, seven years before this, a smattering of wildfires had broken out in Northampton, Connecticut, under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, and teenagers had come to Christ in droves throughout the region. Well, by 1740, what had started at wildfires had turned into a full-on inferno. George Whitfield had come through the colonies with his booming evangelical preaching. The colonists were undone. The churches were filled with the presence of God. And again, it started with the youth, the teenagers. They were on fire for God. And many of them headed off for Yale. And so before the new school year, the Board of Trustees got together to decide whether or not this movement and these young people was of the Lord. Or if it wasn't. And they decided it wasn't. These young people, whatever they were on, it wasn't Jesus. And they would not sign off on this. And they passed a new school rule and they said that not a student in, the stu- in, the, in all of the student body, not a single student at Yale, could say directly or indirectly that any teacher, any faculty, any board member were hypocrites, carnal, or unconverted. And if you did, you'd have to make a public confession before the college. And if you did it again, they'd expel you. So they decided that at this meeting. No more talking bad about the faculty, acting like we don't know the Lord. And then, inexplicably, they made a second decision at that meeting. One they would come to regret. They asked the man who had started all these problems seven years before, Jonathan Edwards, to come down and start the school year by preaching to the students. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. But he came and he addresses the entire student body and all the faculty and all the board of trustees in a sermon called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he gave five true marks of a great work of God. And then he sided with the students. And he said, this is a great work of God. And he looked at those students and he said, go conquer the world for Jesus. And he looked at the faculty and Then he looked back at him and he said, and be patient with these older Christians who are taking longer to get on board. As that movement of God, which we have come to know as the Great Awakening, rolled on in the 1740s, the impact was absolutely incredible, particularly for people like us. The Methodists and the Baptists blew up. In the 50 years following the Great Awakening, Baptist churches increased by 375%. Amazing what you can do with church autonomy and no overhead. You can get some churches started. More colleges were established. Like the the famous Brown University started by Baptist. Young men being sent out into pulpits. Fired up about the holiness of God, about the salvation of God, the sanctification of God, the return of Jesus. It sparked social and moral reform. Abolitionists emerged out of this movement proclaiming the evils of the transatlantic slave trade, saying it is not in line with the principles of Christianity. Untold amounts of people came to Christ. Not just colonists, but the indigenous peoples were coming to Christ so I know you hear of a movement like that, not in some far off land, uh, not, a, not a movement in England, like a few weeks ago with Tyndale, not, not a movement on, on, uh, in the east somewhere on the other side of the world, right here in America on our own soil. You hear about that. You hear about droves of young people so on fire for the Lord, there has to be an administrative meeting about it to figure out what are we going to do with these young people? And you hear that and you go, I want that again in my nation and I want that in my church our nation is in terrible need of an awakening York County is in great need of a movement of God this neighborhood Seaford needs the Lord And we as the people of the Lord want to see his glory spread far and wide. And sometimes our hearts just burst and we think, how can we see a movement of like this? I I want to see it here. I don't think it's a bad question. How can we see a movement like that here? It's a good question. It could have bad answers if we're not careful. We might think we could come up with some sort of silver bullet, some sort of magic ministry sauce to make a movement like this happen in our midst. That's not the case. If you look at God's word this morning with me in Acts 5, what we will see is that there's no silver bullet, there is no magic sauce, but there is something, there is something in the soil of this great movement of God that we see in Acts 5, 12 through 16, and there was something in the soil of that great awakening as well. And I think that as people who would love to see a great movement of God in our midst, we want to know what that something is. And so let's look and see. Acts 5, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching and the teaching of your word this morning, and Lord, I pray that we would look at what's in the soil in Acts 5, as we see this great movement from your hand sprouting and and, and taking bloom in these verses. What's in the soil? We want to see that, Lord, because we long to see more people saved than ever. More than ever, believers being added to you. We long to see that, God, not for the greatness of our name or the greatness of our church's name, but for the sake of your name. Any sort of selfishness that's wrapped up in it, any sort of our ego that's wrapped up in that, God, crucify that. Get that out of us. And I pray that we would leave here with a pure, raw desire to take the gospel to the nations, a pure, raw desire to see. You move in our midst, and that we would take that even to VBS this week, where there are little hearts desperate for the truth. And we know there are people all around the world desperate to get to those hearts and to speak lies to them. Well, we want to tell them the truth this week, Lord, and we want to see a great movement happen in our midst. Could that start at a vacation Bible school? Of course it could. But, Father, What's most important is what we put in the soil. Show us that this morning. It's faithfulness. Make us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearly every word of this text is wonderful news. And if you come to pretty much everything that we do, you know that we kind of need that. Because last week we had Ananias and Sapphira dying. We have a very dark trip that we are taking right now through chapter 16 through 18 of the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. So I'm very happy for us to preach through a text this morning where nearly every word is just good news. It's a glad report. In verse 13 you see that there are many signs and wonders being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In verses 15 and 16, you learn more about what those signs and wonders look like. People are carrying their sick into the streets on cots and mats with the hope that Peter's shadow would fall on them. In verse 15, people are gathering from the towns of Judea and they're bringing their sick. People uh, are, are, that are afflicted with demonic spirits, they're being brought as well. And Luke says they're all healed. They're all healed. And if this sounds familiar... It might be because you've read in the Bible about Jesus doing something similar. In Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. It's so much like the description that we see in Acts 5, 12-16, regarding Peter and the apostles. And that's purposeful from Luke. Luke is showing us the continuity between Jesus and the apostles. He is showing us how Christ gave apostolic authority to the twelve that is unlike anything the world has ever seen since. The sort of authority we see the twelve, the apostles having in the beginning of church history, in the early church, it's unparalleled. Really, it's on display from Acts 4.32 all the way through chapter 5, verse 16. Because in these verses, you see a powerful testimony being given to the Lord Jesus' resurrection in Acts 4.33. You see the church coming and laying everything at the feet of the apostles in Acts 4.35. You see Peter leading the questioning of Ananias and Sapphira, speaking authoritatively about the judgment of God. And so apostolic authority is on display and now in these verses, we have signs and wonders being done by the hands of the apostles. And you have people who just want Peter's shadow to fall on them. And notice Luke doesn't say that Peter's shadow has the ability to heal them. It's just that the people recognize there is so much potent power in the ministry of the apostles that they thought just his shadow could heal them people are flocking to the apostles like they flocked to Jesus before them And, and just as the kingdom advanced when Christ was physically on the earth the kingdom is continuing to advance through his body the church as he works through them reigning from heaven You see the kingdom advance in this passage. Verse 12, they're on Solomon's portico. Albert Moeller says, the portico is ministry ground zero for the early church. In Acts 3, we saw Peter preaching the gospel there. And even though he has been explicitly told, do not keep preaching in the name of Christ, here they are, right back at it, on Solomon's portico. They're preaching boldly in the face of opposition, and because of this, you see in verse 13, the other temple worshipers, they will not join them. They respect them. Other Jewish people passing by, they're like, oh, those, those, those folks seem pretty passionate over there, seem like they're doing a lot of good work over there. They hold them in high esteem, but they're not going to go gather with them. That's too risky. Everybody knows the temple authorities are probably going to be making arrests at any moment. Everybody knows they've been told not to preach this name anymore, so they're not going to associate themselves with them, but they kind of give a tip of the hat, you know, a tip of the cap, if you will. What verse 13 represents is a place of neutrality that you do not want to be in when it comes to a great movement of God. You don't want to be saying, I respect it, but I'm not bold enough to be a part of it. Because that place of neutrality is not a place of neutrality at all. In the end, you're really just opposing it. You're going along with the world. You are either on God's side or you are not. You're a part of his movement or you are not. Neutrality of the others in the temple does not stop the church from exploding like never before. More than ever, Luke says, believers were added to the Lord. More than ever. This is in verse 14. Multitudes of men and women, he says in verse 14. The word multitudes means a full amount, which is Luke basically saying, I can't count them. He's been tracking the numbers, right? He's been studious. He's been tracking the numbers. as a good historian the whole way. But we get here to verses 12 through 16, and he's like, look, it's more than ever. It's a lot. It's a lot. By saying it's the full amount, what he's saying is the barn is stocked. When, when I look at the barn, the barn is full. The net is full. It's a lot. And you see that those outside the temple, they had no problem drawing near. Those people inside the temple, the people on their way to worship, they could go and worship because ceremonially they were clean. Right? Maybe that's why they just tipped the cap. I respect that, but I don't really need it, at least in their minds. But these people outside, they were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't draw near to worship even if they wanted to. And it was them and the people who loved them that came from the streets of Jerusalem and the nearby towns of Judea and tried to just land in the shadow of Peter. If I could just get my loved one into Peter's shadow, then they would be made acceptable before God. They could be healed. So we would say, just as we have said of the Great Awakening, that this is a great movement of God, if not more so. My, my brother in Christ, Stafford Beasley's here. Where is he, Stafford? Everybody's pointing. There he is. He's up there with Leslie, his wife. We love you. We're so glad you're here. And um Stafford's the pastor at at Cashi did I say it right no Cashi Eye? Cashi Eye. okay he's the pastor at Cashi Baptist Church now I want you to imagine that Leslie writes us a letter Leslie says things are crazy down here near Edenton in North Carolina things are crazy in Cashi we got lost people beating down the doors we're baptizing people so quickly We're having to send them away to other churches because we just don't have room for all of these people. We're having to find other churches to disciple them. We're seeing more people saved than ever. I mean, Stafford cast out a demon last week. Imagine getting that letter. We would rejoice with them. We would say, look at what God is doing down in North Carolina. Look at what God is doing at Cashi Baptist Church. We would say, this is a great movement of God, would we not? Call it revival, call it great awakening, call it a great movement of the Lord. Whatever you want to call it, what we're seeing in Acts 5, 12-16, we want it. Not the apostolic authority. We know that was unique to the man who laid the foundation for the church which we build on today. But certainly, we want to see God use our local church to bring droves of people to the Lord we want to be bold proclaimers of Christ with busy baptismal waters. He told us to be fishers of men. And so we want to see people caught by the grace of God and brought into the body of Christ. What sort of fisherman doesn't want to catch fish? But how do we get it? Got to be careful here. Sometimes people will declare that a great work of God will happen. They will schedule it. They'll set up the lights. They'll set up the music. They'll set up the aisle and the altar. And they will say, this week we're having revival. They will set the mood to encourage a a, a little bit of melodrama. If we can drum up enough excitement, if we can create the atmosphere, well, God will have no choice but to show up. Jonathan Edwards told the students and the faculty at Yale to be careful about that. He said, don't judge whether or not something's from God because there's tears and emotion or because people are learning lots of facts about God with their heads or people have lots of decisions for Christ to count because here's the deal. If a Mormon shows up at your door tomorrow, they're going to say all of that, all of it. They're going to say, we have tears and emotion. Our hearts were moved when we read Joseph's testimony. And they're going to say so many people learn from the accounts of Joseph. And look at all the decisions we have of those entering into the Church of the Latter-day Saints. But we would look at that and we would say that's apostasy. That is a, a an absolutely disgusting stench in our nostrils. To deny the divinity of Christ and say he's the twice-sired half-brother of Satan? Get out of here with those lies. Get out of here with that counterfeit. And yet they could claim those things. So Edward says, be careful judging a movement of God by those measurements. No, if we want to know whether something's a real movement of God, we can't simply inspect its apparent fruitfulness. We have to look at the faithfulness. Jared Wilson says, a ministry's faithfulness to the mission of God is itself a success. Regardless of the results. Yet, at the same time, a faithful ministry will be a fruitful ministry. In other words, not every fruitful ministry is faithful. But every faithful ministry is fruitful on some level. Not every fruitful ministry is a great movement of God because it might not even be faithful to the true gospel. After all, false teachers have been building religious empires up toward heaven since the days of Babel. I think people would have walked by the Tower of Babel and looked at it before God scattered them and thought, man, what a great work of human ingenuity this is. Look at this success. The divine must be behind it. It was an abomination. Any truly great movement of God is fruitful because it's faithful. And so I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about this relationship between faithfulness and the great works of God like we're seeing in Acts 5, 12 through 16. Three teaching points for us, and here's the first. Number one... That's what I've already been getting at. Faithfulness is in the soil when there is a great move of God. Faithfulness is in the soil when there is a great move of God. In God's sovereign wisdom, He builds the faithfulness of His people into His plans. He has declared the end from the beginning, but when he chooses to work, he so often chooses to work by responding to the prayers of his people, the fasting of his people, the preaching of his people, the serving of his people, the sacrifice of his people. Sometimes it's one reluctant servant like Jonah or one weeping servant like Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Sometimes it's a faithful remnant, like the exiles returning home from Babylon. Sometimes it's the surrendered hearts, some radical youth catching the gospel from the mouth of Whitfield in the colonies. But God loves to attach his great work to the faithfulness of his children. Because his children will give him the glory for the work. And he loves that. And he loves the glory that others give him as they come to him through whatever great movement he has brought about. And he loves to see how we are sanctified as he continues to work in us and we trust him more. I mean, is there any doubt after reading the first four and a half chapters of Acts that there's faithfulness in the soil? That this great move of God we see in Acts 5, 12-16 is not coming about in a vacuum? Consider what we've seen of the church at this juncture in its history. We have seen them through the first four and a half chapters be completely reliant on God's word. As as uh, Peter explains to the church, hey, we need to replace Judas. He has turned on the Lord Jesus. There needs to be a twelfth. Number twelve is important. Where does he turn to make his case? He turns to the scriptures. When Peter stands to preach in Acts 2, what's his source material? Is he, is he working from his own opinions? No, he preaches the scriptures in an expository way, verse by verse. What, what is the church do, uh, devoting themselves to in Acts 2? The apostles' teaching. And what did the apostles teach? The scriptures. Peter preaches in Acts 3, he quotes Moses from the scriptures. When the believers are praying for boldness after Peter and John are released, they pray from Psalm 2, the Scriptures. They rely on the Word of God. They are obedient to the Word of God. The book of Acts begins with obedience. It's a little bit delayed, right? Jesus says in Acts 1-8, go to Jerusalem, wait there for the, the power to come from on high, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And they stand there looking after he ascends into heaven and they're told by angels, hey, didn't he tell you to do something? But then they do it. They go to Jerusalem and they wait. And they're obedient to the word of God. They're told to stop preaching the name of Christ by the council in Acts 4. What do they say in return? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Whether or not you think we should disobey a God, you can go figure that out. We've already made the decision. We obey the word of the Lord. They're unified. That's in the soil, right? They rely on the word of God. They're obedient to the word of God. They're a unified people. Luke has described this unity to us with beautiful words. They hold all things in common in Acts 2 verse 44. They go to the temple together day by day, worshiping, breaking bread in their homes in chapter 2, verse 46. When we got to chapter 4, we saw that the full number of those who believed were like they had one heart and one soul, like they're one person. And that unity, it, uh, it, it shows itself in generosity, They hold all things in common. They don't consider any things to be theirs, right? They sell their possessions and lay it at the feet of the apostles. They distribute money as there are needs, and those needs are met. Barnabas is so passionate about this, he stands out as this shining example, and the apostles give him a new nickname, and they start calling him a son of encouragement. There's also gospel proclamation in the soil. The early church loved to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. The Spirit falls in Acts 2. Jesus told them the Spirit's going to make them a witness, right? So they start witnessing. Peter's preaching in Acts 2. Peter is preaching in Acts 3. Peter and John are proclaiming the gospel before the council in Acts 4. The church is praying for boldness in Acts 4 29. Boldness for what? To continue preaching. The apostles are described as giving testimony to the resurrection with great power. In chapter 4, verse 33, they are relentless proclaimers of the gospel, even in the face of persecution. They are shining the lamp of the lighthouse brightly, pushing back the darkness, calling home the prodigal ships. And praise God that for 2,000 years, the light has never gone out, and it will not until the Lord Jesus returns, and then... The whole world would be filled with His light. They're expectant in prayer. They proclaim the gospel, but then they pray with this expectation that God will answer. You see this in chapter 4 especially where they're saying to the Lord, we know the people of the world have always conspired against your holy servants, right? They always they conspired against David and you laughed from heaven and they conspired against your son. And you were using all of that in order to save us. Now they're doing it to us. They're conspiring against us. Don't let us stop preaching. They're just as known for their prayer as they are for their devotion to the breaking of bread or fellowship or learning from the apostles. In verse 42 of Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Are you as committed to prayer as you are to learning from the Word of God? I think as American Christians, we learn to love the Bible and theology and doctrine long before we love to pray. But really, those things should come together. Your knowledge of the Lord through the Word should stir your affections and compel you to want to speak to Him from the heart. It should bubble up as an overflow of your devotion to the Lord. And certainly that was the case with the early church. All this is in the soil. Reliance on the word of God, obedience to the word of God, unity, generosity, gospel proclamation, expectant prayer. And then last week we saw they have leaders who lead, right? The apostles are governing the church with the word of God. They're faithful over the finances of the church and they are not afraid to confront sin. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. And then lastly, we saw that the fear of God is in the soil. There's reverence. And that is a last but not least situation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear that we saw upon the church after the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, it's important. The church must revere the Lord, and this church does. And so that's all in the soil. What you see in Acts 5, 12-16, it does not happen in a silo. It grows up out of the tilled soil of the first four and a half chapters. As this church is committed to work their plot of land, they poured the seed of faithfulness into the soil. The Word, preaching the Word, praying from the Word, godly leadership, reverence for the Lord, proclaiming the Gospel, maintaining unity, meeting the physical needs of everyone around them, within the church. And then when harvest time comes here in Acts 5, what happens? God filled the barns. And who doesn't love a full barn? A full barn of hay or straw smells sweet and earthy. A full barn of grain smells warm and inviting. A full barn of flowers and herbs can even be therapeutic and healing. Well, a full barn of the Lord's harvest smells of His redeeming glory and grace. And this is what we want our church to smell like. This is what we want our spiritual household to smell like. Like the redeeming glory and grace of the Lord. And if that's what we want, we must follow the model of the mother church in Jerusalem. We have to till the soil. We must faithfully work our plot. To teach and to preach the word of God and to pray expectantly and to stay in community with one another and to go on mission together both near and far and to worship together and to disciple one another and to share the gospel with the people that God brings into our lives and to walk in the good works that the Lord has prayed beforehand for us as his workmanship. If there's going to be great fruitfulness. There must be faithfulness. We have to till the land. We have to work the soil. Now, with that said, is this a hard and fast rule? If you're faithful, there will be a great movement of God. If you're faithful, there will be a full barn. Well, I would say no, I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. Indeed, I would say that Scripture teaches there will be results, but there is no guarantee of the multitude. And so number two, faithfulness will yield results even if there is not a great move of God. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast, or if the live stream doesn't show it clearly, I have ironic quotes of disdain around the word great, okay? Let the record show. I know when we say a great move of God in this sermon today, we're talking about the sort of thing we see in Acts 5.14 where more than ever people are being saved, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about teenage revival in the woods of Northampton, but I use the ironic quotes of disdain because the reality is is that any time God adds to his number through any local church, a great move of God has occurred. Just one being plucked up from the mire is a great move of God. Just one being redeemed from the curse of sin is a great move of God. Just one being given citizenship in the kingdom of the beloved Son is a great move of God. Every time the angels rejoice in heaven. For the sake of this conversation today, what I mean is that just because a local church is tilling the soil in faithfulness, it does not necessarily mean there will be a multitude at the harvest. And I'm going to show you that from the teachings of Jesus Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, and to another two. To another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If you read the rest of the parable, there's only one who is punished. It's the man who's given a talent and he does nothing with it. He doesn't invest, he doesn't garner interest, he buries it in the ground in an act of fearful complacency and laziness. But notice in the case of the faithful servants, they are rewarded. They don't all produce the same amount. But they all hear the same words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. One of them produces five. One of them produces two. I'm not great at math. But five is more than two. I'm confident in that. And so particularly in our American Christian culture, we look at the church with five and say, well, that's got to be better than the church with two. Church with five has got to matter more than the church with two. We definitely need to ask the church with five, that pastor to come and speak at the, the, the state convention this year, right? Not the church with two. Well, according to Jesus, both are just simply faithful and rewarded as such in the end. Do you see that? It's the same words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. It is almost like Jesus is teaching that God isn't concerned with our church and our ministry being the biggest and the best and competing with other churches and ministries, but that instead we would look at the soil he's given us and said, Lord God, we are committed to you and we are submitted to you and we will work this plot of land. Whether the return is five or two, we'll be faithful. So you go back to that day at Yale, which I am sure the faculty regretted with every word that came from Jonathan Edwards' mouth. He told the crowd, when a real work of God is at hand, you should look for five marks. And he based it off of 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world praise the lord they are from the world therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them we are from god whoever knows god listens to us whoever is not from god does not listen to us by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error and edwards taught from that text and he essentially said look If there's a growing love and a growing passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is true repentance and people's lives are changing. They're not the same. They've been altered. If it's built on the Word of God and those being impacted by the movement are becoming more devoted to the Word of God. If there is a renewed interest in theology and doctrine... And if there is a heightened love for God and neighbor, he says, if that's all there, it's legitimate. And then he looked at the students who were on fire for Jesus Christ and he looked at the faculty and he said, best I can tell, these young people are the real deal. And if it is the real deal, if it is legitimate, if it's from God, there will be fruit. There will be return on investment. It might be five, it might be two. You know who gets to decide that? The harvester. The one who sent his spirit and commissioned the work. The one who owns the field. It's God's mission. It's God's plot that we're working. We simply do the tilling. We bleed and we sweat our faithfulness into the soil. Trusting that God loves. God loves to use the labor of his people to glorify himself. He loves to take the five and make another five. He loves to take the two and make another two. He loves to take the lunch of a boy and turn it into breakfast for 5,000. You never know what he will do. Just be faithful to him. I want you to know that while it seems easy to just say, just be faithful to him, it's not easy. This is hard work. I think sometimes we look at the mission field out there we look at the mission field out here in Seaford, the mission field down Robana, people that, that live on the creek, and we think Seaford's a pretty, pretty easy mission field. Because there's nobody like with swords being like, no Bible here, right? And, and, and I was in Richmond last night visiting a friend, went to see the Richmond Kickers play. That's a whole different sort of mission field. The ideologies of the world have completely gripped that city. You walk into Seaford, I mean, there is not a rainbow flag hanging from every home. That is not the reality. The way when you're driving down Carey Street in Richmond, you see rainbow flags, you know, hanging from multiple homes. So sometimes we look at Seaford and we think, this is black soil. This is like the Great Plains. But I want to say to you, I think it's hard crust. See, here's the problem with Seaford. Same 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 problem with the place I grew up. It thinks it doesn't need Jesus. Hey man, I've got the right politics, I vote for the right candidate, I've got the right possessions, and I've got the right plan for saving and investment. The Republican Party gives me my morality, and the army or Ferguson or the shipyard or whoever, they give me the right money, and if I have a plan, it means I've got the right mind. What do I really need God for? We are working a plot of indifference. People are indifferent to the Lord. Our neighbors are indifferent to the Lord. In Acts 5, the Jerusalem Christians are working a land where everybody there thinks, oh man, I'll just do a bunch of good stuff for God and I've got Jewish blood in my veins and I'm good to go. I don't really have to be devoted to him. It doesn't really matter how I live in the margins of my life. As long as I go down to the temple and I go through the motions and I've got Abraham's blood in my veins, well, I'm loved. I'm favored. But for us... The Seaford Christians, we're trying to reach a community that doesn't think they need God at all. You don't break through that earth with one upward season. You don't get through that hard crust with one spiritual conversation over dinner. You're probably not getting a yes on your first church invite. But we will keep doing the work That he has laid before us. Trusting him to bring the harvest. According to his good pleasure. Trusting that faithfulness will yield fruitfulness on some level. We just must keep working the ground beneath our feet. As I close up I want to throw out one more point to you. If we're serious about working the ground we can expect opposition. Know that. As you read this passage every word is good news. But it's sandwiched in between opposition from within and opposition from without. In Acts 5, 1-11, you've got Ananias and Sapphira, and you've got judgment in the church, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to see persecution coming from the authorities immediately in a response to this great work that is happening in verses 12-16. through And so our third and final point this morning, faithfulness will be met with opposition in persecution. Faithfulness will be met with opposition and persecution. Verse 16 ends with five beautiful English words. And they were all healed. It's beautiful. Verse 17, it begins with six terrible words. But the high priest rose up. Whenever and wherever there is a great work of God, Satan will be eager to come and try to snuff it out. It was this way in the great work of creation. God creates, Satan comes for the creation. It was this way in the coming of the Son of God. God sends his son, Satan tries to deceive him. And it's this way in the church. Satan is trying everything he can to stop what God is doing. For as Jonathan Edwards told those young people at Yale of the devil on that day, he said, it can no way serve his end to make the candle of the Lord shine the brighter. He wants to snuff it out. All the affection you feel for Jesus, Satan feels the opposite. He hates him. And until we hear the final gasps, Of the dying dragon on his way into the flames of judgment. He will keep trying in futility to put a stop to the advance of the kingdom of God. So we need to work our plot of land. But prepare yourself. Gird your loins. Put on the full armor of God. Because if you're going to till, Satan will see to it that the ground fights back. But praise God that the one who owns the field is greater than the pest who sneaks in at night to try and destroy the crop. I'm going to ask the band to come as we are closing. Wrapping up this sermon. Jonathan Edwards wrapped up his sermon to the entirety of the academic community at Yale. Not with his own words. But with the words of the Apostle Paul. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share it with them in its blessings. Why in the world would that be the scripture that Jonathan Edwards chose to close with? Well, it was for the faculty. Sure, he had told the students they needed to be patient. Everybody couldn't run around doing what David Brainerd did. He was a student at Yale. Remember that rule? You can't tell the staff or the faculty that they're unconverted or say anything negative. He looked at one of his professors and he said, Sir, you have about as much of God's grace as a chair. Everybody can't do that, right? And so there was going to have to be patience. But as he closed, he wasn't talking to the students. He was talking to the faculty. In closing with that text from Paul, he was telling the faculty, you're going to have to be willing to change. Their idea about the way in which a work of God looks and how it comes about may not be the way that God actually does it. And they were going to need to be willing to adjust with the times. They would need to be willing to lay down traditions and maybe pick up new ones. Jonathan Edwards wasn't telling them to change the message, Never. Ever. He graduated from Yale. It would have been over his dead body that Yale would abandon the gospel. If you sat Jonathan Edwards down in a gender studies class at Yale today, he might burn the whole institution to the ground, all right? That's not what he was saying. He wasn't telling them the gospel might need to change. He was telling them that they might need to change. The way they preach, the way they disciple, the way they plant churches, the way they do mission work, he was calling on those men to surrender to God for the sake of the gospel. And if we want to break the dry ground of Seaford, we have to be the same way. We hold the gospel in the tightest possible fist over our dead bodies, right? But on the other hand, we're just open-handed to God in how we preach it. And so let's commit to that together. Faithfulness is in the soil trusting God for whatever fruitfulness he desires to bring from our obedience guarded against the enemy and surrendered to the Lord saying to him Lord we recognize the things we've always done may not be the things we'll always do but we're like we're like water we're just going to go where you tell us to go you just direct us and you just push us this way and that way and we are obedient And we will preach the gospel and we will work the ground. Whether or not history will count Seaford Baptist Church as having executed a great work of God, I don't know. But what I know we are all aiming for is that one day we will hear King Jesus say, well done Seaford, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master. Father, I thank you for the opportunity of this week again God you line these things up the, we, we put the preaching schedule out eight months in advance and Lord I didn't think about this text falling on this date right before VBS so this is all in your wisdom God and what a motivation for us this week I know that there's there's some Baptists in this room who are about to embark on like VBS number 40 I know that They've done this so many times in so many ways, so many themes. Some of them, this is the third time they've seen space come back up as a theme. That's how many VBSs they've done. And God, familiarity can cause us to just kind of go through the motions. Yeah, VBS, another year. Lord, there's little hearts, little souls showing up here tomorrow representing homes that are, that are in need of Jesus, homes that may be indifferent to Jesus. There may be people dropping their kids off here this week because they're just like, oh, uh, free child care. Not knowing it could change their entire lives. Maybe we'd be baptizing their old family in a few months. What do you want to do, God? We don't know. But what we do know is we want to be yielded to you. And we want to work the ground. We want to be faithful. Not just this week, but in all the weeks that you will give us. We want to be faithful. And we know, God, that you will bring fruit from our faithfulness. And whatever that fruit is, we will give you the glory. Make 5-5, five five, make 2-2, two two, make 2-5, two Lord. We just want to be used by you. We want a great work of God in our midst. Humble us, Lord. And help us to put faithfulness in the soil by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.